Why don't we pray together, shall we? Father in heaven, we come together this morning. We know that Christ was probably born in the spring, but we, we section this day off so that we could celebrate what is the, known as the incarnation. Father, we are so grateful that you sent your son, God in the flesh, to come and die for sinners such as us. We pray, Father, that we would hear your word. May it cut deep. May it pierce us. May your word ring true, we pray. Help me. Help me to proclaim the glories of Christ. May Christians be encouraged today. May those who are considering the claims of Christ be called upon in Christ's pleading to turn to him. We pray this morning for power and strength to hear and to preach and to sing afterwards for your glory. Thank you for sending your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you turn with me back to Luke chapter 4? We're going to take a section of what Jason read this morning. It isn't typically a Christmas uh, passage, per se, but I, uh, this was on my heart to preach this Christmas because of, of its pointedness and of why Christ came down. Uh, the, entire, the title of his sermon is called The Rejected Christ. The Rejected Christ. Now, I love Christmas. I absolutely love Christmas. I even love fake chimneys like that over there. I love the music. I love gathering of folks for a good meal. I love the decorations. I love seeing relatives and friends I haven't seen for in a long seen in a long time. I love going for a brisk walk in the morning with fog coming out of our mouths. I love watching silly movies and laughing and repeating the same old tired lines. I love hot drinks on a cold day. White Christmas lights. On a couch with a throw blanket while watching the flames of the fireplace. I love surprising loved ones with thoughtful gifts and watching their expressions. Yet for all these things, I think that if we simply held on to those things, and this is what Christmas is about, Christmas is about family, some would say, Christmas is about the spirit of giving, others would say, Christmas is about uh, dedicating yourself to a soup kitchen, some would say, I would say all of those things are good, but they miss the point completely. Sadly, man will be tolerant of all religious trappings and traditions, Yet still, left to himself, in his heart, he will reject Christ. They can tolerate the manger scenes. They can tolerate the Christmas lights. They can even tolerate the rosy-cheeked baby in a nativity figurine set. But the real mission of why Christ came and what he came to do... And, what he, and how he is, and people are to deal with him. They're to make a decision about him. Folks will rather have just the traditions and the religion and not have the Christ ruler over their life. Yet, Jesus is the only Savior and is himself his own attraction 
that can soften the man's heart to trust in him. So, simply put, in this part, we're just going to go through verses 16, and then we're going to go to 30, 16 to 30. But God gave this passage to you this morning. God gave this passage to you so that you would place all your faith and trust in Jesus right now. If you are a believer in Christ, praise the Lord, you can revel in the fact that God himself came down and put on flesh to die for the sins of men. If you are not a believer, I pray that you would consider what the scriptures say. It's not about gifts and doing nice things for folks. Christmas is not about volunteering in a soup kitchen. The real cosmic question, the only question that matters is, what do you do with Jesus? In this passage, there are three pleas calling you to repent of your sins and trust in Christ alone as the only Savior of your soul. Now, I don't know where you're at. I know we have visitors coming here, and I don't know even, even uh, the youth who are here or even the adults who are here. I don't know where your heart is at, but I, I, I want to tell you this is the message of the Bible. This is the clear unadulterated message of the Bible, non-commercialized. This is what Christ is all about. So number one, in verse 16, he says here, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. Now, my first point is, turn to Christ. If you have notes, are there any more notes? Any more notes? If anyone wants notes, raise your hand. Anyone? We're all good? Okay. Turn to Christ because he enters humanity for you. Turn to Christ because he enters humanity for you. Now, you're going to look at this text and say, Angelo, where do you get that? Well, first, we want to talk about what did he do? This is the whole point of Christmas. Okay, It's not Santa and it's not the reindeer. This is the whole point of Christmas was that he entered humanity to save you. His physical incarnation. Notice it says here, and he came to Nazareth. Now, this is not the first point he, the first time he mentions Nazareth. Luke is talking about Nazareth, but he has a context in which he's talking about Nazareth. He references Nazareth. This is not the first time. Notice he says in verse 16, he came to Nazareth, and then he has a context to remind you. He says, where he had been brought up. Now, we know the first time he mentions this is in Luke chapter 1. So, we could even stay in the same book, but if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. Luke chapter 1, verse 26, and it says, Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. Here's the famous Christmas story that we know and love. Okay. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called, here it is, Nazareth. Okay, so what is the significance? To a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold... You will conceive, here's the whole mystery, the wonder of Christmas. He says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. 
He will be great. He shall be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. And Mary understood what was happening here. He, she was engaged to Joseph. They, they had not been together. They, they weren't married quite yet. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? Verse 35, the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she was also called barren, is now in her sixth month. And then Mary says in verse 38, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. What is happening is here, Luke in chapter 4 is mentioning the same story that has happened in Luke chapter 1. Do you remember when I said Nazareth? You remember how he grew up in Nazareth? And here the whole mystery and the wonder of Christmas is rooted and seated here in verse 34. How can this be since I am a virgin? Verse 35 The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And what this is saying here is that divinity itself, God himself, the one who shares in the same nature as the Holy Spirit, the one who shares in the same nature as the Father, will come into the womb of Mary, join himself to humanity, and be born. Now, the birth was not miraculous. I want to say that again. The birth was very natural. Some folks get say, hey, 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 what are you saying? The birth wasn't miraculous. Okay, there was angels. Okay, you could say that. It was, it was miraculous in that way. But the very physical act of the birth was not miraculous. What was miraculous was this conception that God would condescend. And this is all over the scriptures. That he would put on flesh, he would condescend. He who is above all the heavens and the earth, he who rules on high, he who is, as Jesus said in the book of John, that he shared the glory with the Father before the world was. He came and he stooped. Now most of us, if you're having a baby, you want to make sure you have the best health care or the best midwife and you want to make sure that you have everything in order our God put on flesh and humbly was born in a feeding trough that's what a manger is in a stinky stable where you would probably tell your kids hey don't play there don't play there that's where the Lord of the universe decided to be born. And so, Luke talks about, he mentions, and he came to Nazareth, you know, where he grew up, citing back in Luke chapter 1, and all through his childhood, you remember this, that he, this is God in the flesh, coming for us. My dad and my uh, my good family friend came from Texas and I'm honored that they would come and spend all that money to get on a plane to come see me. Why? Because Texas is a little far. You gotta catch a plane. Your God, brothers and sisters, you gotta understand 
The distance between you and God is immense. And he bridges the gap by taking the form of man to understand every aspect and temptation that you have. Not to understand it factually, but to actually experience and live in that. That it says where he had been brought up. Notice in Luke chapter 2 verse 40, it mentions the same thing. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 40, it says, 39, let me see. They had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. They returned to the Galilee, and then it says here again, to their own city of Nazareth. He wants you to know it's a city of insignificance. It was a, it was a shore city on the Lake of Galilee. It was known for it was known for it was renowned for its sin because there was a military outpost there. It was a little town. They would call Galilee uh, Galilee of the Gentiles, known for its sin and debauchery because the Roman soldiers were there. And yet this is where the Messiah decided to be born. And notice in verse 40, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. The one who knows all things condescended into human flesh to learn. You have to, you have to stop and think about that. He restricted himself to that which is human so that he can learn and that he can grow and he, that he can experience all the facets of humanity. That was his physical incarnation. But there's also this cultural incarnation. Notice he says in chapter 4, he came to Nazareth, Nazareth, Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. Now the synagogue there is a place of learning where two or, or more Jewish men would get together. It did not replace the temple, but it was a place where they could worship and read the scriptures and hear God's word and hear it expounded together as they were so far away from the temple. And it says, and as was his custom on the Sabbath, he stood up to read. What Jesus did was he not only came in the flesh to become man, he fully embraced his responsibility as a Jewish boy. He fully embraced his responsibility as a Jewish man. He did this so that he can fulfill all righteousness where we lacked. He came down for us to fill, fulfill what we couldn't do. If you notice back in Luke chapter 2, he says, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee. Notice he says they performed everything according to the law of the Lord. Jesus Christ is the only one who has done it perfectly. And it says here, when he became 12, they went up through according to the custom of the feast. They were returning after spending a full number of days. When Jesus, it's, it's pretty interesting when Jesus was in the water with John the Baptist. John the Baptist stopped and said, why do I need to baptize you? I'm not even worthy to untie the sandal, uh, untie your sandal. And then Jesus in Matthew chapter 3 verse 15, he says, Permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
See, Jesus took on every cultural, every religious distinction of the Jewish people. He was going to fulfill every aspect of the law. So that it is not just his death that pays for our sins, but his righteousness that credits us, credits us in our account of having accomplished all that he has done. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says this. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In that, Jesus' death pays for our sins. Jesus' life credits us all the righteousness that he has done perfectly. See, to miss this point is to miss the whole point of Christmas. R.C. Sproul, who uh, uh, just went home to be with the Lord... Uh, he had a, if you have a chance, you could watch his memorial online. It is fantastic. John MacArthur was there. Steve Lawson was there. Sinclair Ferguson preached phenomenally in his Scottish accent. But what R.C. Sprawl said about it, he said, about Christmas, he said, what we celebrate at Christmas is not so much the birth of a baby, but the incarnation of God himself. We ought not to be too familiar with this. Do you understand? Maybe I'll say it in a different way. We ought not to be too trite with this. This ought not to be old hat with us. This ought to be trembling ground where we stand. This is precisely why the author of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews chapter 2.17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. He experienced the full range of humanity. He hungered, he thirsted, he was tired, he was fatigued, he sweat, he was tempted by the devil. And he did all these things for you and for me if you've come to faith in Christ. So turn to Christ because he enters humanity for you, making it possible for God to fully identify with man, therefore making him fully qualified to redeem man. He had to be made like us. The second plea Turn to Christ because he grants liberty to you. I love this. He grants true freedom. Folks think they're free. They think they're free when they can do whatever they want, when they seek whatever they want, and they could fall for any sin that they want. That's not what Christ came to do. He frees you from the bondage of sin. He frees you from the bondage of depression. He frees you from the bondage of this side of Genesis chapter 3. Notice he says, God promises true liberty. And notice we say here, And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book, and he found the place where it was written. This is quite interesting. Because here, Luke writes in the early 60s, okay, 60 AD. Isaiah was written around 680 B.C. So that's over 700 years. 
And Jesus is going to refer to this passage and he says, it's about me. And what does that tell us? It says that even at least over 700 years, Jesus, God, God the Father has promised he would send his son so that he would alleviate all the ravages of sin that so plague mankind if they but turn to him. He promised us before you were even born. You could even go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where it was promised that the, the son of the woman would, would step and stomp on the head of the serpent, though he would bite him on the heel. But God promises true liberty. It's reiterated through the Abrahamic covenant. It's reiterated through the, uh, his promises to Isaac and Jacob. It's reiterated all through the prophets. And he cites Isaiah saying, this is about me. Notice, God declares true liberty. It says here, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me. The word there for uh, Messiah, when we talk about Christ, it's, it's the Greek translated, translated word for Messiah, anointed one. When we talk about anointed, this, uh, this term anointing means it's a ceremony for priests or kings or special servants, a way of consecrating the individual for service. What they would do is they would pour a little bit of oil in the ceremony that would say, okay, this person is isolated for this kind of service, is specialized for this kind of service. And so what they're saying about this Messiah, this Christ, this, this anointed one of God is that he is consecrated for this special service. But what's amazing is that Jesus' anointing is not oil. It's not a ceremony. Jesus' anointing is the Holy Spirit himself. Notice, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me. All that Christ did, this is interesting, all that he did was first mandated by the Father. We know that in John chapter 8, Jesus says, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And then the next verse it says, He who sent me is with me. He who has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Okay, so we know that as, as Christians, we know that Jesus did everything of the Father. Whatever the Father said He did. Whatever He was commanded to do, He did it in the power of God. Uh, he, he did it under the mandate of God. But what's interesting is everything that Jesus did on the earth because he has himself put on humanity, everything that he did was not only mandated, initiated by the Father, but everything that he did was empowered by the Spirit. He did nothing in his own power. I think that's astonishing. If you think about it, this is, this is what helps you to grasp the true humanity that Christ actually put on. He didn't do it. You would you'd think, man, if you're tempted, I probably would have a show of my own power, or a show of my own strength, and, 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 and solve my problems that way. But Jesus himself said, I will be, I'm not going to do anything in my power. I'm going to rest in the Holy Spirit. Luke 2, 27 says, He came in the Spirit into the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry it out for him the custom of the law. Over and over, you would see in Matthew chapter 4, he was led by the Spirit to become tempted. 
over and over, Jesus Christ, and you see the wonder of the Trinity together as Jesus takes orders from the Father and then he is empowered by the Spirit to fulfill his ministry. But what, what, was it, what was he talking about? Notice he says here in the text, he says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me. But you notice here, he says, I love this passage. He says, now, Lord, you're, uh, verse chapter 4, he says here, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. God declares true liberty. And who does he declare it to? I love this. I absolutely love this. Notice, he declares it first to the spiritually bankrupt. To the spiritually bankrupt. Notice he says, to preach the gospel to the poor. What Isaiah is saying here, and Jesus is quoting Isaiah as he is reading that text, to preach the gospel to the poor. We understand that preaches a proclamation. The gospel is the good news, but you can't understand the good news until you understand the bad news. If you don't understand that Jesus came down in the flesh to, Na to Bethlehem and grew up in Nazareth because our sins necessitated it, you don't understand the Christmas story if you just want to know the story without the sins that necess necessitated it, the sins that precipitated his coming, you don't understand the story. What he says is he came to preach the gospel to those who are spiritually bankrupt. That's what poor means. The word they're poor means to cower. It is those who have no hope. It is those who, when they come before God, they know they have nothing that can equal his perfect standard. It is the, those folks who think that they have good works and yet they have filthy rags as their offering. It is folks who think they're just fine. And yet in reality, their lives are without Christ, without God. Some of them may even have nice jobs, nice clothes, nice cars, and yet they are godless people. They don't live with Christ in their hearts, in their minds. He says, I came to preach the gospel to those kind of people. Which imp implies a, a certain thing, right? It implies that folks would understand themselves as poor. Brothers and sisters... Friends, everyone apart from Christ are really spiritually bankrupt. Don't let anyone fool you. you, set, you sometimes you tend to think that those who are spiritually poor are those who are addicted to heroin or meth or those who are, uh, those who are addicted to any other of their sins. But it is this those people are poor just as much as, who is he talking to? The religious hypocrites. The churchgoers who don't know Christ. The folks who live a, a sense of morality that they've created in their own minds. 
He says, I came to preach the gospel to them. Are you spiritually bankrupt? Do you see yourself this way? Do you see yourself as, as when I'm before a holy God? Not saying, oh, well, I guess I'm better than that guy because I didn't kill anyone. You know? But when you look at the holiness of God and his perfect righteousness, his utter perfection, and I compare my life to that, I tremble. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, not even one. All have turned aside. Together they are useless. Secondly, Christ came. I think, see, you see the wonder of this? Jesus came for those kind of people. Secondly, he came for those who are spiritually enslaved. He came for those who are spiritually saved. Notice he says, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. What's interesting is that word release is the same word, aphiomai, where we get the word for forgiveness. It means to let go, take away, freedom. See, folks who are enslaved to their lust, enslaved to their drugs, enslaved to all of the things that they want to do that have nothing to do with Christ, they think they're free. They think they're independent. Let me tell you, you, the Bible calls you enslaved. You've got the whole thing flipped around. The Bible says in Romans chapter 7, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage of sin. Titus chapter 3 says, for we, I, I love how he says this in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. Why don't you turn there with me, Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. I want you to see this text. Titus chapter 3. The reason why Titus says not to malign your rulers or your authorities, to be ready for every good deed, Titus chapter 3, to malign no one, to be peaceful, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Why? What is the motivation? The motivation is because this is how you used to be. If you are in Christ, this is how you used to be. And then he starts to catalog some sins. This is God's indictment of mankind apart from his son. He says here, we were also, I like how Paul includes himself, don't you? Thank you, Paul, for including yourself. Because sometimes you think, Paul, oh, you're so holy. I'm never going to be like you. I think I was having this discussion with um, Dan I'm going to try and be like Paul. No, Paul includes himself in this catalog. He says, we also once were foolish ourselves. I thought I knew. I proposed that I was such a wise person. I thought I had all the answers about God. We were foolish ourselves. 
And how did it manifest itself? We were disobedient. We knew the rule of God either in the word or even on our hearts, in our conscience. We knew what was right and we did what was wrong even though we knew it. Even though our hearts were screaming at us and we squashed down our conscience and we were disobedient. And it could be as big as, it could be as, big as any kind of sexual sin or, or, or pharmakeia, which is a, the Greek word for drugs. It could be for any other of those sins, but it could be as, as hidden as bitterness and anger and strife towards someone else. Envy, jealousy, we were disobedient. You were deceived. And then here it is. Paul includes himself, okay? Even though Paul lived a righteous life from the outside, he says we were also what? Enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. He says you were enslaved now. If you're enslaved, if you're imprisoned, if you're shackled, the whole definition of it is that you have no decision to leave when you want. Correct? A prisoner is not a prisoner if you could leave whenever you want. A prisoner is a prisoner if you are stuck there and there is no hope for you and no one can free you. And this is who the people that Christ came down for. Those who are enslaved and that they see it. Now, this enslavement can take on different forms. Usually, this enslavement is a sort of escapism. It's folks who don't want to deal with the deeper reality that I have sinned against God. And I don't have a right relationship with him. And I'm angry at everyone else. This enslavement can be in the form. It can be in drugs or sexual promiscuity. Or it could even be enslaved to various other idolatries such as internet. Or it could be enslavement to even TV shows. Or it could be enslavement to your hobby. Or it can be an enslavement to even your sports team. Whatever captures the mind and doesn't let go, you are enslaved to. You are just like that addict who says, I can stop whenever I want to. No, you can't. You just trade your enslavement for another one. And Jesus says, I came to release them. I, I'm right there. I remember in high school, I was enslaved to my sin. I'm so embarrassed, I don't even want to talk about it. But I remember the night he freed me. I came home from a night of sin. And it was as if Christ through his word was saying. Are you going to do this your way or my way? And he came to set me free. Are you sick of it yet? Are you sick of your sin yet? All that it promises you and you know it doesn't pay. You know it gives temporary pleasure and then when it's done, the guilt overwhelms you and what do you do? You go back to your vomit like a dog. 
Christ says, I can free you. You need to deal with your sin. You need to trust in me. Ask for forgiveness. And I will release you. And you will never be dominated by that sin anymore. You'll never be enslaved. Because I will free you. And you will have power to fight. You may struggle. Right? You may even hobble along, but by God's grace, you are not under its dominion anymore. I, I remember when I was freed from my sin, I was elated. Now, does it mean I, I don't still struggle? Of course you still struggle with things, but now I am released. Amen? The gate of the prison door is open. I can walk out right now. Why do I want to hang out in that cell? That doesn't even make sense, does it? Now, are you enslaved? Are you addicted? Christ came to free you. He also came to the spiritually darkened. Notice he says, and recovery of sight to the blind. Now, there are many folks who have wrong views of Jesus. Uh, I, you know, I've got friends who I'm trying to share the gospel with, and they just believe in such weird, weird things. When the word of God is so clear, so evident, it is right here in black and white. They could pick up a copy, and they could know that 99.9% .9 of each of the manuscripts that we have of the scriptures are exactly how it is in the manuscripts, and that the only variations that are there are really just spelling variations. And yet, they believe in Illuminati and conspiracy theories and when the rocket, you remember when you guys saw that rocket that came through Vandenberg? All these theories came out. And I'm like, what in the world? There's no stability. There's no perception. There's no idea of spiritual truth. Why? Because they, they have these wrong perceptions of God. These wrong perceptions of Jesus. They think he's an itinerant teacher or a nice moral guy. They don't know he is God in the flesh who came to die for the sins of man. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says this. In whose case the God of this world, that is the Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What is it that they don't see? They do not see the glory of Christ. If you are sitting here today and you don't see why we're excited about Christ, and you don't see the wonder of Christ, and you think that this is simply fairy tales and mythology, if you're sitting here today and you don't see it, let me tell you, the Bible has said you are blind and you can see, though, if God opens your eyes. If you go to him not making deals, do you understand? You don't go to Christ making deals. I will turn to you if you do this for me. I will believe in you if you do this for me. You don't go to Christ for deals. You go to Christ because he is worthy of allegiance, worthy of loyalty, worthy of all your faith, because he came down for you. Now, 
if you ask him honestly, open my eyes. I want to see wonderful things in your law. Open my eyes. I'm having a hard time believing. He will meet with you. Yes, he will. He will clear up those misconceptions about him. Are you lost in perspective? Are you questioning what is true, what is right, what is wrong? Do you want to know the meaning of life? I remember this haunted me as a non-Christian. What is the meaning of life? All I did was sin. And I just felt empty afterwards. What is the meaning of life? This meaning of life is that you were put here, made in the image of God, to give Him glory and reflect back that image. And you cannot do that unless you have been regenerated in Him. That means to be born again. That means to be, have new life in Jesus by believing in Him. Your mission is much greater than simply going to college, getting a job, working 20, 30 years, dying, and being buried in the ground after having paid SDG&E, your water bill, your Cox cable, uh, internet. Your life is, much, is designed for so much more than that. It is to reflect the very glory of God himself. And you're missing it. Let him open your eyes. Stop resisting. He speaks to the spiritually bankrupt. He speaks to the spiritually enslaved. He speaks to the spiritually darkened. And he speaks to the spiritually depressed. Oh, I love this. What a tender Christ we have. A bruised reed. He will not break. Amen? To set, what does it say in Luke chapter 4? It says here in Luke chapter 4. To set free those who are oppressed or translated those who are downtrodden. You could even translate that to be those who are beat up. Beat up. Second Corinthians 7 says, God who comforts the depressed. Oh, I love that, don't you? I love that. What can you be beat up from? Do you feel beat up from this world of sin? Sometimes it's the consequences of your own sin. You sinned and and now you're just collecting the fruit of it. And you have to face that. Sometimes it's not even your sin. Sometimes it's the consequences of someone else's sin. Against you. Some broken relationship. Some wickedness that was done unto you. And now you're suffering. Sometimes it's the consequences of sin in general. We live in a broken world. I think of folks in less fortunate countries where poverty runs rampant. Children are hungry. Even in, in, in our lives, we just, fought, we just live under the consequences of sin in general. Disease, death, disappointment, brokenness. Are you perpetually, here's a question, are you perpetually depressed? 
You don't have to be an older person to, be, to feel depressed. Younger folks can be depressed. Kids can be depressed. Youth can be depressed. Teens can be depressed. College age can be depressed. Depressed means there is an absence of hope. You don't think it's going to get any better anymore. Maybe because I did something. Maybe because someone did something to me. Maybe because it's just, it's just broken. You can't get going. Jesus says he came to set free those who are downtrodden. What a gentle savior you have. He is not some cosmic God that likes to see you in pain. I think that's why some that's how some people see God. He has come. Listen to Jesus' words, okay? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. Jesus, he may not even take the trial away, but I promise you this. He will be with you in the fire. Yes, he will. He will give your soul what it longs for. That is true rest. But you need to deal with the sin issue. And that is to repent and fall on your face. And trust in Christ. And then he says, God executes true liberty. I love this. He, he talks about the folks who he, who he will save, who he will change. But he says, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That word favorable year is a technical term. Also, day of salvation or the year of redemption. He's saying, I say this to you this morning. Your lives can be changed. Because I've come, and I've come for this purpose, to preach the gospel to you. God created man, and in his sin, he has rebelled against him. And God's perfect standard could never be met by your best good works. And so what he did, Jesus came, put on flesh, and he put on flesh for the express purpose of living a holy life and dying a violent death on the cross so that if you would trust in his person and his work, you will be saved. Your sins will be credited on Christ. His righteousness will be credited on you. And forevermore, you will be his. Now, is the favorable year. Now, right now, brothers and sisters, friends. This favorable year has a time window, though. And it will soon close. 
I have to tell you the positive aspects of, of the gospel in that he is tender and compassionate and he beckons everyone to turn to him. But there is definitely a negative aspect to this in that this time window is going to soon close. It will either close in death first and you will be judged or it will close at his ultimate day of judgment when it, which is coming. See, your delay earns judgment from God. Your delay earns judgment from God. See, turn to Christ because he gives opportunity to you. He says here, he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him. Now, you're going to say, well, how is that judgment, Angelo? Here is, here is something very interesting. Notice he says, the, he reads the text. But let's go, follow with me to Isaiah chapter 61. Jesus does something very, very astonishing. So put your finger here in Luke chapter 4. And then now turn to Isaiah chapter 61. And we'll see where he quotes it. Isaiah chapter 61. You've got to see what he does, okay? Isaiah chapter 61, it says, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Okay. That sounds pretty familiar. To bring good news to the afflicted, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, and freedom to prisoners. Okay, that sounds pretty familiar. Sounds just like Luke. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Notice the end of verse 2. Look carefully. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all those who are more. Notice. He says to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. What's astonishing is that in Luke chapter 4, as Jesus is reading, and he's, and he's about to say, this day has come and it is fulfilled. He says, I have come to do this, to proclaim freedom to the captives. I've come to bind up the brokenhearted. And now is the favorable time of the Lord. And he stops mid-verse. Do you see that? He stops mid-verse. He doesn't continue. Why? Because right now, in this time window, in this time window of the gospel, in this time window of the age of the church, in this time window right now, now is the time of salvation. Now is the time you could run to him for rescue and for mercy. Now is the time because what's going to happen in Isaiah 61 Later on, verse 2, 2b, it says, and the day of vengeance of our God. See, there here, what's amazing in chapter 61, verse 2a, a, and 61, uh, chapter 61, verse 2b, in between those verses, brothers and sisters, is amazing, is over 2,000 years of church history. Because right now the favorable time of the Lord is his first advent. Yes, the Christmas story. Right now as he came and died on the cross. Right now as you could call upon the Lord for mercy. Right now this is the favorable time of the Lord. After which will be the day of vengeance. When judgment will come. It's amazing. Christ himself says and he stops there. Isn't it amazing? This Day of vengeance, or the day of the Lord, is a technical term amongst the prophecies. It means when he will come, 
Not as he came the first time, gentle, gentle on a colt. He will come on a white horse, judging his enemies. And the time for repentance will be over. And he says here, here, I'll, I'll read some verses to you. Isaiah 13, 6. Wail for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Isaiah 13, 9 says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation. 1 Thessalonians, in the New Testament, chapter 5, verse 2 says, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. 2 Peter, Peter says this, chapter 3, verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Jesus stops in the middle of Isaiah 61, 2 and says, that doesn't apply yet. Wow. Right now. So as we go to our families preaching the gospel, as we go to those dinner parties, Open up your mouths and your hearts to them as the compassionate Savior. Tell them the favorable time of the Lord is right now. Because your delay heaps offense against Christ. It heaps offense against Him. He began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And He's telling them, I am opening up this day, this favorable time. We see much later that in Luke chapter 4, back in Luke chapter 4, they stored up wrath, as Romans chapter 2 said. They were storing up wrath for themselves. We know that Luke chapter 4, 22, they were speaking well of him, but they're wondering at his words. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? His incarnation was mocked. John 8 later on says, uh, John 8, 41 says, they were mocking him of the incarnation. They knew he was born of Mary, and they blamed him of being born of fornication. Out of wedlock. John chapter 8, 41 says, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, even God, implying that Christ was born of fornication. His incarnation is mocked. His message is rejected. Notice verse 23 of chapter 4. No doubt you will quote this proverb. And then he goes to 24. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. His warnings are ignored. Notice in uh, chapter 4, verses 25 to 27. And he gives uh, different stories about Elijah and the Israel and widows. And he's saying, God had mercy on this one widow. God had mercy on these people. And he's going to pass you up unless you repent. And notice his murder was imminent. Instead of receiving the kind message of Christ. What did it say? Verse 28. They were filled with rage. And they rose and cast him out of the city. And led him to the brow of the hill on which the city had been built. In order to throw him down a cliff. And they would do that to him today as well. Yet in verse 30, his mission remains undeterred. He says, but passing through their midst, he went his way. He didn't die until, he was, until his time has come. He went right through them. But all this to say, brothers and sisters and friends who are here, 
2 Corinthians 6 says, at the acceptable time, the day of salvation I helped you behold. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Turn to Christ. He entered humanity. He grants liberty. He gives opportunity. Don't wait. Receive this Christ. The story of the manger is not a story of cuteness. It's the story of the incarnation of God himself to save man from their sins by sacrificing himself on the cross. This is the real Jesus. Turn to this Christ. He'll give you of your sins, free you from your addictions. He'll give you hope and lasting peace. But you must deal with your sin in Christ. You must receive him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you came for the brokenhearted. Thank you that you came for those enslaved to their sins. Thank you that we could celebrate. Oh God, turn that sinner to you. May they see their sin. Like Paul, we were also part of that group. Until you turned us, not because of our righteousness, you turned us, God. You caused us to see the glory of Christ. You opened our eyes. You freed us from prison. You comforted us when we were depressed. You did all these things. Oh, Lord, use us in our families and with our friends. Do this work. Help us to sing. Thank you for this, Lord, saying. Thank you for Christmas. In Jesus' name.